All right, so as I put on Facebook a couple days ago, um, this week is going to be the first of several that we're going to be focusing on parables of Jesus from Matthew. We're going to have, after this week, we'll have a few weeks where we're not talking about parables, and then we'll have like four weeks in a row where we're talking about parables. And I'm super excited because I love parables. They're hard to teach because I think we come in with a lot of presuppositions about what they mean. And we usually bring our context, our cultural lens with us and all of the things that we've learned about these parables, because these things are fodder for especially teaching little kids. And I think they miss a whole bunch of subtlety and a whole bunch of um, depth of understanding that Jesus is trying to bring to us. And so hopefully I'll be able to just like in a half an hour here, like get into some of the things that are in these three parables that we're going to be talking about today. Um, I wanted to share with you this resource that I absolutely love and that was um, shared with me in seminary. It's this book called Kingdom, Grace, and Judgment by Robert Farrar Capon. Um, this and like I have a thousand commentaries at home. If you guys have been to my house, you may have seen all of my books. Um, but this book about the parables is amazing. Um, he writes really engagingly it's not like one of those dry academic books like you can read this and it's kind of funny and it's if academic books can be kind of funny this is one of them um but if you're into reading it i think steve would be really into it i'll share it with you after we get done with the parable stuff but um it breaks down pretty much every parable that's in the new testament so this is actually a compilation of three books that he first published but really highly recommend that all right, let's dive into the text, Quinn. All right, so we're in Matthew 13, 24 to 43. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No, for in gathering the weeds you would uproot the wheat among them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers. Collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables. Without a parable, he told them nothing. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth to speak in parables. I will proclaim what has been hidden from the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples approached him saying, explain to us the parable of weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. 
The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen. All right. Gosh, I just want to dig right into some of it. I like, slow down. Okay. So the first thing I want to talk about, move on to the next thing, Quinn, um, is absurdity. There is a whole bunch of absurdity in this first parable. Um, if any of you know anything about gardening, you can probably tell some of the things that are wrong. Eric, what is wrong with some of the ways that this is discussed? They've, so they've, there's this wheat, and then there's weeds. There's no weed control. <laughs> there's no <laughs> weed control. But do usually, do you have to sow weeds into your crop to get weeds? I do not do that. No. <laughs> no, one, no one would do that. It's a little crazy. What, el what else is weird about it? Can you come up with it? You don't, it doesn't have to be you. Anybody who gardens can probably answer this pretty well. You can de-weed stuff without tearing up your plants and stuff. Yes. Although there is a lot to be said. The picture that I posted on Facebook is wheat and darnel, and those two things look remarkably similar. Um, and you can't really tell the difference of them until the, the like seed part starts maturing at the top, the tassel part. I don't have the right words for. You gotta watch I don't know out for Darnell. Do. You gotta watch out for that Darnell. <laughs> I thought that was a philosopher when you first said it. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and you all can talk about that later. All right. So I have a, a list of eight things that are absurd about this parable. Number one, if there's slaves in the household, why is the owner doing the sowing? and reapers doing the reaping. What do you have slaves for? The slaves are asking questions, which is also an unusual circumstance for slaves. Okay, again, if anyone who's grown anything knows that seeds don't need to be sown, plus it was against the law in Roman times to sow any of that false wheat into the field. That would get you thrown in jail and probably a fine. Um, it would take a lot of work to gather weed seeds. Like, why would you go to the, the effort to get weed seeds? If you wanted to be an enemy of someone and to wreck their field, you could do lots of other things to their field other than trying to go through all of that work to plant weeds, to make that whole process take a long time. So the slaves are surprised that there's weeds in the field. Like, what? How could there be weeds in your field? Did you not plant good seeds? That's just strange. Um, I said the slaves' questions are basically demonstrating a keen sense of the obvious. <laughs> That's funny. So, um, and then the master's response was bizarre. So the landowner uh, doesn't respond that way. So I said most gardeners know you need to take the weeds out as soon as you see them or else it's going to be a lot harder to pull them up. Their roots get bound up with the other roots of the other plants um, and it can choke out all of your good plants. So this is like opposite most people's knowledge where gardening is concerned. All right, number seven, the slaves weren't assigned to separate the weeds from the wheat. It was somebody else. So again, the slaves aren't doing work. And then eight, 
the usual order of that harvest is reversed. So you're not going to go, usually when you're harvesting things, you're just cutting down everything. I mean, we see that in fields around us all the time. They just cut all the corn down. They cut all the soybeans down. They don't like separate the weeds out until after the fact. It would be like doing a double work to go through and to pull the weeds out in that harvest process, then to go through and pull out all of the wheat. So it's just extra effort. So now we've got to go into this parable going, all right, Jesus understands, or at least has some knowledge of agriculture, or else he's not going to be telling parables about agriculture. But he's walking into this situation knowing that the t story he's about to tell is absurd. So it's like when we go see a sci-fi movie, we don't necessarily believe that everything is happening in this movie is reality, right? Like we don't go, okay, these people are levitating and that's like a normal circumstance. No, we don't, we don't look at it that way. But there are, there are morals and things that can be learned or gleaned from that, but you've gotta be able to step back from a literal understanding of what's happening, okay? I think Jesus is setting the table for us with all of that absurdity. Okay, next one, Quinn. So Jesus is telling lots of stories about soil and seeds. Um, the previous parable that happens right before this one is the one about the soils. And that's the one that we more commonly like kind of study where it's like seeds are sown on the rocky soil, on the good soil. And then it's like kind of stuff with lots of weeds and there's, there's conversations about what happens over time. Um, but here in this story, you've got this field that's seen as more of like the kingdom of God and into the which two kinds of the seeds are sown. So you've got the wheat seed and the weed seeds. Um, and so some, some commentators really look at that as, so the kingdom is the field. Well, that's like everything. So the kingdom is everywhere at all times. And then all of us are kind of sown into the kingdom, no matter what kind of seed you are. If you're a wheat seed, you're a weed seed. You're, we're all in the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom then is working at all places and in all times and with all people. And I think that's really hard for us to grasp, especially if we think about, um, you know, kind of examples of evil that get used in the world, like Hitler. I mean, Hitler is like ob the obvious one that people throw out all the time we have to consider is God at work in Hitler? If we believe that this parable is true, then we have to engage that question. Is God working truly in all places and in all times and in all people? The other thing that's interesting too is that the landowner is like not freaked out about his crop here. Most people, if, they're, if their servants come to them and say, hey, your crop is being taken over by these weeds, they're going to be taking action immediately because as early as you can get at it, the better. But he is nonplussed. He's like, it'll be fine. We'll just take care of it at a later time. We're all right. It's all good. It's because he's so confident that this wheat is strong enough to withstand the weeds that the weeds are not a threat whatsoever to the wheat, to the good things that are sown into the kingdom of God. That is not a threat. So evil is not truly a threat to God's work in the world. And I think we have a hard time with that because I think our, our justice stuff that gets inside of us wants to eradicate evil. 
Like we want to work actively against evil. Um, and I'm and I'm wondering if this parable might ask for us to take a bit more of a relaxed approach. And that is a challenge for me because I want to be fighting injustice. Like that is a natural inclination for me. And so I have to look at this parable and wonder, all right, what is God's wisdom about this? What is true about God's kingdom remaining steadfast over time and not being affected by the evil in the world? What does that really mean for me? So go to the next slide, Quinn. So I've got some more stuff about this resistance to evil. So a lot of pacifists have used this passage as a support to the non-resistance of evil. Um, It doesn't say that resisting evil is morally wrong. He's not saying to the slaves, don't you go and get that out of there. That would be wrong, that you're going to get in trouble, that if you do that, it's bad. But I think there's a caution here that says that if we go after all of these weeds in the midst of the wheat, if we're trying to eradicate all evil that we see, we may be pulling out good things too. And I think it also helps us to remember as well that, you know, not everybody, we can't divide the whole world into these neat categories of good and evil. That doesn't exist. That's not a reality. So inside of each one of us, we have good things and we have evil things. Every single one of us. We have um, circumstances in which when we act, we are able to act in our best way. We can respond in the best light. But there are other circumstances that we walk into where we can act so ugly. We can act with so much evil. And I think we want God to look at us in the same way as the weeds in the wheat. Like, we are the whole field. We are all of the wheat, and we are all the weeds, and are all mixed together. And we don't want God to weigh us against all of that that's mixed up, do we? We want God to be able to look at us with love and to understand that we're a work in progress (laughs) and that our life circumstances will affect and change how we respond. And we hope that we are leaning more on the side of love and goodness than on evil and darkness. But we know that we're not ever going to be completely out of that evil and darkness. Because that's the reality of the world, isn't it? Like, none of us is going to be perfect. None of us is going to be able to act in the world in a way that's entirely without blemish. And so I think what Jesus is calling us to is forgiveness. And I think the words that Jesus actually uses in the mouth of this owner is to forgive. And so the the word that gets translated um, in some ways as let, um, it's verse 30, let them both grow together. So that Greek word can also be translated send away, let go, or permit. And it's the same Greek word in the Lord's Prayer that we talked about a couple weeks ago. It's the same word that is translated forgive. Like forgive your sins the, those that sin against you as you have forgiven, God has forgiven our sins. It's the same word. Punishment or retaliation is a poor way to extinguish evil. And we think that's what we need to do. 
But what God is saying to us through this parable is, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's powerful. It's a, it's a complete turning of how we think we should respond to injustice and difficulty and evil in the world. And when people hurt us, we need to forgive. And forgiveness doesn't mean putting yourself in the same position where you get hurt over and over again. Forgiving the people that took our computer doesn't mean that we just respond by putting it out, like sitting it outside and saying, here you go, have another computer. We can forgive, but we can respond in wisdom and figure out ways where we're securing our things more effectively. That's still forgiveness. I think that's a really powerful way of looking at this passage. So I think we need to have a lot of discernment. And give, God gives us a leeway to have discernment in how we respond to evil in the world. Um, Jesus is reminding us here that we shouldn't be quick to judge. We shouldn't like run right out to the field and pull those weeds out until we actually see what's happening, until how we see things are growing. So these are some questions I kind of put together thinking about how do we discern? Um, is there a long pattern of evil or, or cruelty, whatever it is? Is there a desire to change? Is there fruit of that change? Does whatever evil considered have a wide-ranging effect? So thinking about the effects of what that person is doing. Will calling out this evil or wrong lead to positive change, or would that push the person deeper into whatever they're struggling with? But these are hard questions that don't have yes or no answers. This is work. And I think living in the world as Jesus did requires us to do work. It's hard. It's never black and white. It's messy. It's dealing with lots and lots of gray and always leaning into grace and love. Always. Because that's how we are dealt with by God, with grace and love. Okay. So let's move on to some more absurdity. <laughs> We've got a couple more parables here. Um, there's the mustard seed and the yeast, and these ones are like super popular, and you've heard them probably many, many times. Uh, the first absurd absurdity is that the mustard seed is the smallest seed. Any of you who've like used mustard seeds in cooking, you're probably not planting mustard, but most of the time if you're using mustard, they're not that small. They're kind of like round. They're like the size of non-pareils and maybe a little bit bigger than that. Um, they're not the smallest seed. So I think it's interesting that Jesus makes it, it's like, oh, this is the smallest of seeds. Not so much. And they knew that there's other seeds that were smaller. But it grows into this plant that is a garden plant. It's useful, but it spreads like crazy. It can be kind of invasive. It's an invasive species. Um, and it grows in really weird places. And it becomes a nuisance and will take over other plants. So God is representing the kingdom as this invasive species that's kind of a nuisance. I love that. I'm like, is God's kingdom a nuisance? Yeah, it's a nuisance to the way that we think is right for doing things. Um, it's a nuisance to uh, authority. It's a nuisance to a lot of things. Um, and 
it talks about the mustard seed becoming a tree eventually. It doesn't really become a tree, it's a shrub. And at the most in that area of the world, they would grow maybe to like eight, maybe 10 feet under like impeccable conditions. Um, but they're not strong enough to hold bird's nests. So this passage is talking about mustard growing into this tree that holds birds. And it's like this, it makes you think kind of more of like a maple tree or an oak tree, like what we would think of. But it's not that at all. And so what Jesus is doing is he's calling to mind for the Jewish people um, passages in the Old Testament that are about the cedars of Lebanon. And so the cedars of Lebanon were, were these um, trees that represented the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of the Jews. So being like this strong and powerful empire. But Jesus is saying, you're not a strong and powerful empire. You're actually this like common everyday nuisance garden plant that gets into all the cracks and crevices of the world. You're not the thing that requires a ton of water to grow. You can grow in crappy conditions, but you're still there. I think that's a really beautiful picture of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. We're not this prettied up, beautiful picture postcard group of people. We're kind of this ramshackle, which is our word of the day, Eric and I, <laughs> ramshackle, um, throw together, not so perfect, kind of a nuisance group of people that God is using to do something beautiful in the world. And it's a miracle that we can have birds that nest in our branches because God only knows we can't do anything good of our own strength. It's through God's work and the miracle that God provides by his spirit to make something beautiful and good through us and our jacked upness. I think that's amazing. All right, now we have this very short parable. It's only a sentence long about the woman and the yeast. And it is remarkable and absurd because everywhere else in scripture, yeast is about corruption. It's about evil. But here Jesus uses the yeast itself to represent God's kingdom. So this woman is taking the yeast and is working it into three measures of flour. Three measures of flour is 50 pounds of flour. This woman is working hard to get this out here. It's like a ton of work. This is the same amount of flour that Sarah uses, that Hannah uses, that Gideon uses. So this has representation in the Old Testament. This is a common amount of flour for when people are about to have a revelatory experience of God. So was this woman working the yeast of the kingdom into this flour about to have a revelation of God? So God's kingdom is yeast, but it can't be separated from the dough because you've got to have the, the yeast and the water and the flour and you work it all together and it doesn't really become dough until all of those things are worked in. You can't take yeast out. Anybody who has made bread, that's, ne that's an impossible circumstance. You're not going to do it. It's, once it's in there, it's in there. Once you put water with the yeast, it's in there. You, you can't take it apart. It's dissolved. It's on a molecular level, it's turned into something else. 
you probably with some crazy scientific equipment might be able to separate it out, but we're not gonna go there. So the kingdom is an essential part of the creation of the world. So it's all in, it's all in the dough. It's all there. So that the word of God in Christ, who is present at the creation of the world, is present everywhere. And just like yeast, no matter what you do, Jesus works everywhere anyway. All right. So now we come to the most challenging part of this text. Um, Jesus' interpretation of the parable, the first parable. When the disciples come to him and say, hey, tell us what that weeds parable means. I think it's interesting that the, the disciples talk about it as it's the weeds parable. It's not the wheat in the weeds. They're focusing on the weeds. That's their lens that they're looking from. Um, so a lot of scholars think that this interpretation was not of Jesus, that it was actually Matthew's church and the ones that were writing this book that put the interpretation in there. I'll just leave that for you to, to think about um, and how that might affect your understanding of the text. So um, that church was dealing with issues of having people coming into the church and messing stuff up or spreading false information and kind of trying to divide the congregation from inside. Um, it, this interpretation spends half of its length talking about uh, judgment, whereas the original verses, there's only one verse that kind of references judgment and it's not explained. It just basically says that those the weeds and the wheat are separated and the, the wheat is burned. And it doesn't go into dramatic detail about it, whereas in the interpretation, it does. It's very dramatic. So in this book, he gives a very interesting um, response and an understanding of it. And, you know, because we're just reading what's written, we don't have any understanding if this is from Jesus's mouth, how he spoke this what he was saying, the way his body language that was used, because um, this author, Capon, believes that he may have been joking around <laughs> with the disciples because it's kind of facetious if you look at it. Um, because Jesus is going into specific detail, spends half of the parable describing what the allegory is, like who represents who. This is this person. This is this person. And for the most part, parables are not like entirely representative. And that's a poor way of looking at parables. And so Jesus is like falling into this trap that people like to fall into. Like, what does this mean? What does this mean? And people do that with like, especially the book of Revelation all the time. Like, who does this character represent when it's actually more of a bigger picture story about what God is trying to say about the kingdom? Um, and it falls into, too, the disciples' desire for there to be judgment and for there to be essentially hell to pay for people that do evil and do wrong. And we have that inside of us, too. We understand their desire for that. So maybe Jesus was following the, the way that we crave after the headline for the punishment for people to get what they deserve. Um, so he went there, complete with the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he followed it up with the phrase that in other texts say, he who has ears, let him hear. 
almost as if he's saying, here's my interpretation, but if you were really listening, you can really understand what I'm trying to say. And especially when it's paired with those other two parables, with those interpretations that I shared, that are all about the, the presence of the kingdom of God being um, not about empire, being about like pervasiveness and continue, like um, perseverance over time. I think this response about it being kind of a joke or hyperbole could really be a good interpretation. So what Jesus is doing is inviting us to a new kingdom where all are included that grows wild and fast and in unexpected places and through unexpected messengers. Evil happens, as we know, but God's kingdom persists. And it persists by forgiveness and love inaugurated by Jesus himself on the cross. So I came up with a few things for the last slide that I think we should carry with us um, about these three parables. Number one, evil will always exist until the end of the age. It's always going to be around us. We ought to not believe that it's going to just simply go away because of the good work of the kingdom of God. It just will always be there. And we ought to be cautious about going after it with all of our might because we might be missing some perspectives that would make situations less black and white. Remember that judgment is messy business. Number two, the best course of action is love and forgiveness. Leave judgment to God, but be wise about future interaction. Number three, God's kingdom is here for all people at all times, and no one is outside of God's love at any time. Number four, things or people we think are evil or wrong may actually be used powerfully by God. And I think that's the hardest one for us to wrap our minds around. But we have to remember that there's other perspectives and circumstances that in the ultimate and unlimited mind and perspective of God that we are entirely missing because we're fallible. We're human. We don't get to see it all. Number five, these are not simplistic or easy things to deal with. They require wrestling and community and prayer. There's no easy answers and definitely not simplistic thinking. So we can't just dive into judging people and think that we've got it all figured out and we know we've got it down. We've got it to the last black and white letter. Nah, we're foolish if we think that's the case. So that's why we need to do decision-making in community because I think we're a lot better together than we are as one. Last one. God is in the business of working in and through everyday things like farms and plants and making bread. God is not fancy. So we don't need to be fancy <laughs> with God. God cares about us. God loves us just as we are. We don't need to pretty ourselves up or make ourselves look better than we are. God just wants us to be us and to be willing to follow this pervasive kingdom that will not be stopped by anything, by us, by others, by changes in culture, God's work will not end. And so let's come and be a part of that work. And so when we come to the table, we remember what Christ has done for us. We remember that gift of love and forgiveness 
that we also ought to extend to others. And so as you come to the table today, thinking of those spaces and places in your life that are not so black and white, where there's people that maybe have hurt you or wronged you in some way, that you desire for there to be judgment, ask God today to help you practice mercy and that the miraculous nature of this table and by the movement of the Holy Spirit would make that forgiveness possible. So come to the table, it's open for all. Great home sickness we can never shake off.